Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Mark Aikler to the show. Currently, Mark is Managing Director at Math Venture Partners, which is an early to growth stage venture capital fund focused on technical and digital companies. He's also a serial entrepreneur with a true passion for building new businesses. Additionally, he's a faculty member at the Northwestern University Kellogg School of Management, where he teaches an entrepreneurship class about building innovation teams and culture. Mark is also a co-author of Exit Right, a book about how to sell your startup, maximize your return, and build your legacy. Mark also completed his bachelor's in history and economics at Purdue University. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hey, Patrick Shelley. I am so excited to be here. Thank you. This was, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Oh, thanks. As have we. For those who aren't aware, Mark is one of uh, the luminaries here in Chicago when it comes to startups. And he's just somebody, if you don't know him, you should get to know him. You should reach out and, and, and connect. Uh, just a super awesome human being with an amazing Aww. experiences. So, and thanks. super generous always have a great conversation. So really excited to have you on the show. Uh, If you don't mind kicking us off a little bit and tell us a little bit about Math Venture Partners and what's going on. And I know we want to, we've got a lot of things to cover today. So uh, excited to get in. Yeah. So Math Venture Partners, early stage, primarily software technology venture capital fund. We have two funds and we are fully deployed in both funds. I think we have over 75 investments across those two funds. And our investment thesis is a little bit unusual. So I have a saying, which is the greatest product in the world without customers is a great product, but it's not a business. Mm. And so our investment thesis is we look for companies who not only can build great products as a baseline, but they have an unfair advantage and leverage in a sales model. They know how to sell. And so that's what we look for. And we are typically the first institutional round of investor. That said, we had a wonderful run. We started this uh, math in 2014, and we just recently made the decision not to make any new investments, not to start a third fund. And so what that means is we're going to be focusing on our existing portfolio, but unfortunately, we're not going to be continuing to invest. That's awesome. And some of the companies that are in your portfolio are some of the most uh, widely recognized startups in Chicago. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it's even with you and Troy and your background and the other members, uh, it is a history of of creating value here in Chicago, creating successful business. I've been a customer of, of a few, yeah, as well as knowing people who work and run those organizations. Uh, it's it's really it's an amazing organization that you've all put together. Thanks. You know, I'm I'm so grateful. You know, sometimes venture capitalists have a negative reputation, sometimes earned, but I am incredibly grateful for the passionate entrepreneurs that we have met and that we have helped 
and all the jobs that we have created and all the products that have touched people's lives. And so when you think about it, the money that we have deployed has been such an important growth factor for Chicago, for our economy. We invest outside of Chicago as well. And uh, you know, I like to lead with gratitude. I'm just really thankful for all those entrepreneurs out there. And Mark, can you tell us a little bit more about this book that you just co-authored? Yeah, I, I wrote a book. I co-authored a book with my co-author, Myrta Sherry, uh, called Exit Right. And it's a great story. Can I tell you guys the founding story of the book? Because I think it's yeah. really fun. Uh, please. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I met Mert 10 years ago. And Mert was just a young entrepreneur starting his, his first company, Swipe Sense. And he pitched Troy and I. And we said no. Hmm. I fell in love with Mert. Mert's a great guy. But it, it just didn't meet our investment thesis at the time. And so, but we became friends. A couple more years go by. His company is doing better. He's raised some money. He's going for his next round. He pitches Troy and I. We say no. <laughs> the story is not going where I think people would think it was going. Exactly. <laughs> but we became friends. You know, we started going out for dinner. I had him over, him and his partner, Yuri, uh, who are now in their 30s. They were in their 20s at the time. And I said to my wife, yeah, I invited Mert and Yuri over for dinner. And my wife says, what's a Mert and Yuri? <laughs> <laughs> and we became good friends and time goes by. He is raising a third round. We said no again for because it didn't meet our investment thesis. But when it came time to sell his company, I was the go-to call. And Troy, my partner, it was the go-to call. You know, there were times all transactions have an emotional arc. There are ups and there are downs. There are moments in time when transactions are hanging by a thread. And I was the call in the middle of the night to talk Mert off the ceiling. And eventually the deal gets done and it's a week after the deal is done. It's the first week in March, 2020, right as COVID's about to shut everything down, which put additional urgency in getting that deal done. And I'm having coffee with Mert and he's just bitching. It's just like, Mert, Mert, man, I like, this is a moment of joy, a moment of celebration. It's been 10 years. You just sold your company. like, like, And you're going to have to live with these people for the next X amount of years. Like, like, man, you need a reset. And so I said, in the spirit of giving back, why don't you write it all down? Write it down. Write down what you went through. The company that bought his was SC Johnson. Great company. And if they were buying a consumer packaged goods company, they could do it in their sleep. If they were buying supply chain, a warehouse, they know how to do that. But they had never bought a tech company before, and that and there were some nuances to it. And I said, look, write it all down so that the next time, now that you're on the inside, the next time SC Johnson buys a tech company, you can say, hey, guys, this is what I experienced. This is what I went through. Here's how we can make the process better. So I'll pour 10 pages and I looked at those 10 pages and I went, huh, there's a book here. Well, wow. the reason there's a book here is because selling companies is kind of a taboo subject hmm. because 
One, nobody talks about it because, look, there's confidentiality agreements and nobody wants to violate a confidentiality agreement. Or two, if it was a good outcome, we're from the Midwest. We don't like to brag and right. you know, or we don't want people to know our personal business or how much money we have. Or if it was a bad outcome, keep our <laughs> embarrassed, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, and, and, and so very few people talk about it and CEOs don't talk about it with their boards. It's one of those conversations that doesn't happen. And I realize there's so much wisdom out there. There's so, like, there is art and science, but there is a, there is a lot of really important wisdom to be shared about the process of putting your company up for sale to maximize the, the outcome on lots of different levels for lots of different stakeholders. And what really surprised me about writing this book, we interviewed dozens and dozens of CEOs and got great stories, like the real stories. Like I, I went to the CEOs and say, look, if your adult child was selling a business, what would you tell them? Mm. Like, like tell, tell us, tell us the, like the real stuff. Right. And we talked to bankers and deal attorneys and all the stakeholders and the heads of Corp Dev at all the major tech companies and product managers and like everybody around the transaction. And I thought, so I'm a big believer in humility, uh, or I try. And, you know, I'd been a CEO four times. I'd sold lots of companies. I'd been on the boards of dozens of companies who've gone through transactions. I thought, you know, I have a pretty good handle on this. And I was, I learned so much. Like I really, if you spend two years of your life really focused on a topic, you're going to learn. And I, I learned a ton. And I, I like, there's so much in the book that is really interesting. Uh, like, well, interesting to me. My joke is, if you're having trouble going to sleep at night, <laughs> you know, a couple uh, pages. <laughs> what was the biggest learning? Well, we created a framework that we call FAIR, which is fit, alignment, integration, and rationale. And I can talk about like cultural fit, the how do you build alignment on both sides of an acquisition, you know, the integration plan, which is the ugly stepchild of all transactions. Uh, we talk about that. But the rationale, what was really interesting to me was most transactions and how I thought about transactions. I thought about transactions looking backwards, not looking forwards. So looking backwards, if you were to say, well, my company's worth some multiple of revenue, top line revenue, or some multiple of EBITDA, depending upon what industry you're in and how companies get valued. Most companies get valued looking at a historic number with some kind of multiple that says, okay, I'll give you some benefit for the future, but a little bit. And I, what I came to understand on the rationale what I want to know is how is one plus one equal a hundred? Because looking backwards is looking at your company based on previous performance, not taking into account. So I, I'm a technology guy. So I'll talk about technology companies, not taking into account. If you integrate into the larger company that's acquiring you, what happens if you 
take their sales team or their distribution channels and you plug your product into their sales engine or have access to their customer base. Or strategically, if your product can plug a hole so that the larger acquiring company, they can maybe get more market share and sell more of their core product or retention. What if you can improve the retention rate of the much larger core company's product? What is that worth? Right? And so I'll give you, I tell a story about my partner, Troy. Can I tell you guys a quick story? Please. Yeah. So my partner, Troy, in 1991, he had a little development company, a little dev shop. And dev shops, when they get sold, usually get sold for like 1x, maybe 1.5x revenue. And he did a project for Hyatt Hotels that was an inventory management system that he retained the rights to. And so he was going to pitch Medline. And he pitches them on this little inventory management system. And when they're done, they go, yeah, that's great. We want it, but we want to buy you. And Troy goes, well, I'm not for sale. I I have my little company. I love my company. And they go, no, 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 we want to buy you. So they gave him an offer of 2X, Mm. which was very generous. And and Troy, Troy said, no, thanks. I'm not interested. They came back a week later at like 3X. No, I'm not interested. Two weeks later, they come back at 5X for a dev shop. This is 91? When, what time was it? 91. That's crazy. And Troy goes, Troy goes, well, okay. <laughs> like, fine. <laughs> right, right. You know, and Troy's thinking to himself, I am the smartest human being on the planet. Like, I just, like, I just sold my little dev shop for 5X. But Troy never stopped to ask them, Why? Like, what's the rationale? Like, why do you care so much about this little inventory management software? What's the point? Turns out that what they did was brilliant. So what they did is they currently had one-year contracts with most of the hospitals and selling supplies to most of the hospitals in the country. And they went to their customers and they said, we have this new inventory management software. It's great. You'll need it. We'll give it to you for free. If you take your one-year contract and make it a three-year contract. Mm. Do you know what happened? The very first year, they did over $100 million in new revenue. What's $100 million of revenue at Medline's multiple worth? That's year one. What about year two, year three? Mm -hmm. So Troy, he thought, oh, I got this incredible deal. I sold for 5X. What he did realize is he generated probably over a billion dollars of value. So that's an example, a pretty good example, a pretty personal example of, of understanding the rationale, that the rationale for a transaction is more about the value you can create in the future as opposed to looking in the past. That's tremendous. I thinking about that story, the other component that, you know, because I'm a nerd and I have to over-architect things. Uh, think about the refill value of knowing exactly what's at each hospital, right? So not right. only locking up the contracts, but like now right. I, my sales team just got super efficient of like, this hospital needs 10 times of this. And how much, how much of competitor product you're going to move off their shelves because you're just walking in scanning things now. Genius. 
Yeah, it is genius. Brilliant. Genius. Well, you know, another example was uh, Facebook buying Instagram. You know, at the time, it was like, I think it was 2011 when that happened, everybody thought Zuckerberg was nuts. You know, mm -hmm. he just went public relatively recently, uh, spent just under a billion dollars for a company with 40 employees and virtually no revenue. And the world thought, you're an idiot. Like, why <laughs> in the world would you spend a billion dollars? And, you know, I think last year, Instagram represented, I don't know, it was like $20 billion of profit. You know, it, it's a third of the revenue of the company. It took them, what people didn't understand, myself included, at the time, is Facebook was very much web-based and not mobile. Instagram was mobile forward, mobile first. Mm. And Instagram, you took Instagram, which was going through the roof in terms of users, and utilization and you plug them into the facebook sales engine and the facebook customer base like magic happened wow. so that's just another so that's part that's a lot shelly that was you asked me one simple <laughs> question <laughs> well i do think people sometimes forget uh facebook's really it's huge guffaw on the mobile platform when it first started coming out right there that's right that's they, right they really kind of they they pooped the bed on that one a little bit when it came to like they weren't going native uh software they they were using some really low performing yep. technology and it, it really was a, a big goof up so it, it is and i was one of those people when i saw that and i thought wow that is they're they're insane and uh yeah. So, so understanding the rationale, like, like that was one of that's sort of like one of the big aha moments mm -hmm. for me. And and I'm a I'm a fairly experienced. I've gone through many a transaction. I use the term happy ears when when things like this happen. You know, like the, you get the offer, right? And even for everybody on, on listening, right? You you've had that moment where you're applying for a job or you're trying to get right. something accomplished and. And then, you know, it's hard to have the grace at that moment of a very emotional thing that's going on to pull yourself out, look at it from a, a third person perspective and go, well, why is this? What is what is really afoot here, right? As opposed to uh, yeah. living in that emotional moment. I think it's, but I think that's kind of a critical skill set. It is, but you bring up a great point which is most transactions happen at a moment of time. So a fairly short window of time, and it is an incredibly emotional on, on all different levels, mm -hmm. good and bad. Here's the thing. In the book, we talk about an annual exit talk. I'm going to talk about that in a second. And part of the reason why an annual exit talk is helpful is I think a transaction should be thought of and considered over years, not over weeks. Because if you are building a relationship, so I'll, I'll use technology. If you're a technology company and you think the most likely acquirer might be a strategic acquirer as opposed to a financial, a private equity acquirer, and there's probably some universe of potential acquirers, but there's probably like five to 10 that are the most likely. My recommendation to CEOs, start early, start building relationships, talk to the heads of corp dev, talk to product managers of the much larger company, understand their business as well as you understand your business, understand their holes, understand their direction. 
because the more you understand over time the strategic initiatives and holes of the potential acquirer, the easier it is to build that rationale. So that don't think of it, don't think of that rationale as all of a sudden, you know, the knock on the door, somebody says, We want to buy your company. You know, that's the dream. <laughs> the sweepstakes. Yeah. The sweepstakes. Oh, wow. Right? That's what happened with Troy. The but if you think about it as that you take the time over years to really understand who the potential strategic acquirers are and what their long-term needs are, that, that can help you build that rationale. And, and by the way, one great way of doing it, there's the personal connections, obviously, but if it's a publicly traded company, they have quarterly earnings calls. Mm-hmm. Listen in. Listen in to the quarterly earnings calls. Here are the questions that analysts are asking. Listen to the KPIs that the company is reporting on. So I have these empathy rules, which is it's not about you. Do your homework and bring a gift. So it's not about you. It's always about them. Do your homework, like really do your homework and bring a gift is how do you add value Mm. to them, not to you. So do your homework. So if it's a publicly traded company, listen to their earnings calls. Listens to the questions the analysts are asking. Listen to what the numbers they're reporting on. And then when you're having conversations with them, instead of saying, my technology does X, Y, Z, say the impact of my technology on you, on the metrics that you care about. I can improve retention rate. You know, I can improve, you know, land and expand. I can, you know, the the average revenue per customer. I can extend the lifetime value of a customer, whatever those metrics are, like the uh, Jedi mind trick is to frame the conversation, not about you, but about them and the impact that you can have on their business. That's brilliant. You you sound like a product owner, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think, and I think you bring up a great point when, you, when I talk to other entrepreneurs they value their business based upon what they value their business at, right? Yes, like, yes. It's like whenever you watch Pawn Stars, right? It's like, well, this should be a thousand dollars. Like it's fifty bucks, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, we know you love it, but you don't get paid for. There's no value in how much you love your asset, right? And so, really, getting outside of the, your own head and and yeah. seeing, like, well, I also think that would be very influential and helpful to like understand, like. Are the acquirers that you're considering, right? Are they are they actually the ones you should be considering or should you be right bouncing around a little bit more and, and checking some other areas and seeing like, okay, so maybe this isn't a fit. I mean, I think we all recognize there's going to be some serious changes uh, over the next couple of years. So it'll be interesting to see how uh, what an organization values is going to change in the next 24, 38, 48 months. Well, also- I pray at the altar of revenue. So a lot of times technology companies fall in love with their technology. Like, And my question always is operational efficiency is good. Saving money is good. You know, better tech is good. Making money is better. Mm-hmm. So in, if we're, if you're talking about a potential transaction, especially in difficult markets, 
My question is, how do you frame the impact of your company product service in a way that is accretive, not viewed as additional expense? Mm. So there's a framing here that I think is also really important. And I think uh, I use the term multipliers, right? It can't be just additive, right? Right. No, it has to be a force multiplier. Yeah. Otherwise, why do it? Right. And your story about Troy hits on that exactly. Of like they're giving him five x because it's going to be ten plus x for them, right? That's that's simple math for them. That that is stupid easy for them to to spend that money. And I think that's part of it is to understand yeah. where are you, because they're 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 looking to accelerate something right but that said there are some stupid buyers in the world right oh that, for sure because <laughs> i've seen some service companies getting picked up for crazy multiples where you're like what were you thinking there how do you ever hope to especially in a service company well yeah i mean look there are frothy markets mm. and difficult markets you know we just lived through a 10-year period a 13-year period uh, that culminated in a really frothy market mm -hmm. where uh, I have another saying, which is the business fundamentals always matter eventually. <laughs> Even, like, like, eventually, you know, the, the, it, it, like, the business fundamentals always matter. And, and actually, that's going to come back, I think, this year. One of the things that I don't think a lot of people are focusing on and should in difficult economic times. So I love debt. So I think debt is a wonderful instrument. I just love the things you say. Nobody, I love debt. That's fantastic. I love it. Well, it's brilliant, but nobody, I've never heard anybody say I love debt, but that's tremendous. Well, look, it's a fantastic instrument when there's predictability. Right. When 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 markets are up and down and there's not predictability or you can't raise more capital and capital becomes scarce. So I think that there is an upcoming debt apocalypse. So you talk about people doing irrational things in the past few years uh, prior to this year, a lot of companies were laddering up on debt. And when business is good, it's great. But man, and if there's cheap cash, and if there's cheap cash and you can raise another round, yeah, fine. Well, what happens when cash dries up and business starts to soften and you start to trip your covenants? That friendly banker who takes you to <laughs> out to dinner and drinks and takes you to the Cubs game, that all you know, all of a sudden they they bring out the knuckle dragger on the like <laughs> they, they, they don't care. Right. They're like, you are, I think there's a lot of companies who have debt on the books right now that are going to start tripping covenants in the next year or two mm. and are going to be in for a world of hurt, a world of hurt. And they don't even know it's coming. Wow. That is, that is, I think you've got a great point. Cause yeah, I mean, we, it's a decade of decade plus Baker's dozen years of some pretty cheap cash, right? And well, you, you see people who really shouldn't be saying things about debt that like, hey, you're a sucker for not using more debt. And it's like, but there, there's a clock on that, right? To your point of like, you can only do it for so long. Well, you trip a covenant and the bank can call the note. 
or the lender can call the note. It's like, and I'm starting to see that across our portfolio companies, across other companies that I'm I'm aware of, where lenders are saying, "You tripped a covenant. I want my money back." Oh, and in that case, I mean, uh, I know it, when they that occurs and they want their money back. Does that mean I've seen it, and I've only I've only known of it. I've never personally been involved in a situation like that. Generally, you're going to go out and try and find some other mitigating lending sources to start paying some of that back, but it get the rates get pretty terrible, and it is a downward spiral. Yeah, it's it feels like payday loan kind of time. It is, and and here's another thing too. Now I'm going off topic, guys. Sorry. The um, I'm kind of like you remember the Muppet Show, with the two guys, and the like, oh yeah, hey, you kids get off the lawn, right. <laughs> yeah, right. I uh, I have come to deeply appreciate when there is relative economic balance between different classes of shareholders. Mm-hmm. And it really bothers me, and, and not perfectly, of course. I don't think everybody's equal, but it really bothers me when there's extremes. So in the past few years, when the valuations weren't tethered to underlying economic reality, the economic interests of the entrepreneurs and the investors weren't always aligned. And the same is coming on the other end of the spectrum now. You know, and I saw valuations where companies with zero revenue wanted a $50 million pre-money valuation. It's like, like, how do I make money? As like, how, how does that even compute? Like, it's not going to happen. And, and all of these investors who said, I don't care what I buy in at as long as the next person down the line pays more. Mm. Like a Ponzi scheme. That's, right? That sounds like a Ponzi scheme. Right? But the same thing is happening in reverse now. So now the pendulum is swinging back, and investors, to your point, the terms are becoming significantly more onerous. So participating preferred 2x, 4x, 6x multiples, mm. cumulative annual dividends of 9%. And what's happening is. Good luck with that because try selling one of your companies where the preferred shareholders have significantly different economic interests. If the common shareholders are going to get zero, the human behavior is pretty predictable in some ways, right? Like you can pretty much predict if somebody's going to make money and the other person's going to get zero, how the person is going to get zero <laughs> is going to act, right? And so, like I don't think I, I think there is value for having preferred shares and control mechanisms, but but I like balance, mm. and I think all of these investors who said, "Yeah, I don't care about valuations; it doesn't matter." Those are the same people who are now getting their pound of flesh theoretically and th- and saying, "Yeah, now I want a six x multiple." Right? It's the same person, and I think they're really bad VCs. Mm. Either side. Interesting. Anyway, that's it. Now, now, now I can get off my rant. It's, well, and I think it's it's an, it, especially now because it does seem like there's a bit of a bill coming due for a lot of people and a lot of things. And you know, one of the things that I know is a big issue for you, and I think one of the I think uh, from my perspective is one of the things that separates you from a lot of people, and also I think it's probably the foundation for your, a lot of your success is that you really focus on trust, and you mentioned that in. You know, even in this transactional environment of like, we're going to go sell our company at some point, 
it's really about the trust of getting to know some of those people before you decide yeah. to do some business. And it's yeah. something that I, I know that they talk about with, uh, what's his face? The guy down in Omaha. Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. I'm, yeah. again, diminished skills phase of my career. <laughs> but Warren Buffett, it takes him a month to do a deal because he's got trust with the people that he works with, right? He's he's it's it it helps speed things along. So I, I you've got a lot to share there. I would love to to for you to share with our listeners your perspective on trust and how critical that is for long-term success. Well, it's everything. You know, I I gave a talk a couple of years back called The Inevitable Economics of Trust. And and I and I think about it not not only in terms of interpersonal relationships, but in terms of a longer time horizon. Because if you believe in the life, I ask CEOs all the time, I say, what do you measure? Uh, do you measure transactions? Do you measure monthly revenue? Like, what do you measure? Do you measure lifetime value of a customer? Because if you value the lifetime value of a customer across years, then you're willing to invest in that relationship because you know over time that relationship has value. And I'm just a huge believer in trust. I think I trust is the lubrication that enables relationships to stay intact. So in not only interpersonal relationships between people, but relationships between people and companies and brands, like we're human, we all make mistakes. And trust allows for the benefit of the doubt. And the benefit of the doubt is so powerful and important in terms of believing that somebody has good intentions. You know, I use social media. I don't know about you. About 2016, I got off of all social media except LinkedIn. LinkedIn's the only thing I use. I only use it for business purposes. But I got off of Twitter and I got off of Facebook. And, and I think social media... Here's an example. I think social media is really powerful and has important societal impact and, and important positive value if used appropriately. But it also can be used to manipulate elections or people have died or spread misinformation or hate. And this concept about free speech. So I, I think of trust. I use social media as an example. Um, I think they have fundamentally violated our trust. Mm. I don't believe that in this argument that social media is simply a platform, that they're not responsible for the content that sits on top of the platform. They're just the platform itself. You know, I, I use... I think that they have they have armies of people who manipulate each user to spend. Like you ever get the email? Oh, you haven't been on Facebook in three days. Here's everything you've missed. Like you know, you know inherently you're being manipulated, and I think they've been poor guardians of our data. Whether they're, you know, the Facebook selling our data, or they uh, are there've been data breaches but they've been poor guardians and not responsible for our data. And through all of that, I feel like this is not the first time. Uh, I'll give you some historic, as a history teacher, I'll give you some historic precedent. Think back to the 1960s. 
or 70s, your hometown newspaper. So Patrick and Shelley, where did you grow up? Mount Prospect. Fox River Grove. Okay. So I'll use Chicago. So imagine the Chicago Tribune in the 1960s. We were more of a Daily Herald fan. Okay. Daily Herald. <laughs> imagine the Daily Herald, right? So the Daily Herald, they had news, right, that they published. They had op-eds, but they had a journalistic code of ethics. Mm-hmm. They had a journalistic board who reviewed all the content. They had ads, like they had big giant display ads. And remember want ads when a third of the newspaper was want ads, right? That's how I found jobs. Right. Right. I try to explain that to people. Yeah, I actually had to go <laughs> get the newspaper to find a job. Right. So they had plenty of ads, but they also had a journalistic code of ethic. And so if somebody printed something in an ad that violated their journalistic code, would the newspaper publish it? No, no. they would not. Right. Would they publish news? Would they publish an op-ed? Would they publish an op-ed written by one of their readers that violated their journalistic code of ethic? No. 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 They had free speech, right? Do you know why that journalistic code of ethic came to be? This is a great story. Because of the 1920s and just the absolute bombastic lies in New York and- Well, the- yeah. You're close. You're really, really close. Okay. So it, it's, it's the broadsheets, the- right? It was, yeah. I- yeah. You're right there. So it's the 1890s. So the 1890s, it was uh, yellow journalism and the uh, uh, sinking of the Maine and the Spanish-American War. And the yellow journalists, they're just making up shit. Like they're just, they were just constantly printing lies and drumming, getting people all riled up to go to war. And the American public, it was uh, Joseph Pulitzer versus... Yeah, I can't help you. But right. yes, I do. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, Rand- William Randolph Hearst. So William Randolph Hearst, J- Joseph Pulitzer, and they're just having these pulp wars. And finally, the American public got fed up, fed up, and they went to their Congress. Now, that was a time when maybe Congress was actually a little bit more functional than today, but they went to their Congress and they said, you do something about this. And so Congress went to them and they said to the industry, and they said, clean up your act. If you don't clean up your act, we're going to do it for you. And they created this journalistic code of ethics. And Pulitzer, in a great PR move, created the Pulitzer Prize for journalistic integrity and ethics. <laughs> right? And and so so the pendulum swings. And I, I actually personally believe that the pendulum's going to swing again. Uh, and so I think trust is essential. Essential. And I'll give you an example in my world, the venture capital world. And this was an interesting conversation between an LP and me. And I said, I want to create transactions that I'm not always worried about getting squeezing the very last penny out of a deal. I want to make sure that I take care of everybody and that, and that the deal works for everybody. And I had an LP, an investor, who's going to wait a minute. You're not doing your fiduciary responsibility. You're not like your job is to squeeze every penny out of a deal. Mm. And I said to him, well, if you look at it through the lens of one deal and only one deal, then you are right. But if you look at it across 
a portfolio of companies across a long period of time, across multiple transactions. I have seen VCs do exactly that. Just use deal docs to squeeze every last penny and, and hurt other investors and hurt the entrepreneurs to maximize return. And I said, do you think that entrepreneur, when they have their next company, they're going to invite that VC back? No way. Do you think they're going to tell other entrepreneurs about that experience? Absolutely. Do you think your fellow VCs, a lot of our deal flow comes from other venture capitalists who say, hey, I'm, I'm looking at this deal or I'm an investor in this deal. Do you want to come on in and join me? Do you think if I screwed them in a prior transaction that they will invite me into their next one? And oftentimes the difficult transactions are the ones that don't return as much. And so I said to the LP, my job is to create value across longer time horizon, across many companies, not just one company. And the guy went, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, tremendous. I, I, it's such a great perspective. And I think it's, yeah. it's one that I've seen many successful people, whether you're uh, focused on selling your business or growing your, your, your professional experience. Uh, I think too often people do get caught up in these moments, right? No, sure. And I think it's, uh, unfortunately, it's people are afraid of potential disrespect or being taken advantage of. And that's the fear that they respond to sometimes. Yeah. And it's it, it, to your point of like, hey, I, I didn't get the raise I wanted. I didn't get this. I didn't get that. But if you think about the longer term and what's possible by extending that and just thinking, well, what, what would be different? What's possible in, in 12 months? What's possible in even five, six months that if, you know, just keep moving forward. Uh, and I, I say that uh, because I think it's one of the most important lessons I learned uh, that it's really important to to extend that horizon uh, and remove some of that pressure that we, we, we manufacture. We, we manufacture that pressure. Amen. You know, I ask CEOs this all the time. I say, in a transaction, I say, will your employees come to your management team, come to work for you the next time you start a company? Will your investors invest in your next company? Will the head of corp dev who bought your company when he's moved on to the next company, will they buy your next company? I don't think of a transaction as a moment in time. Think of it as an opportunity to build relationships and value over time. Absolutely. Mark, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing uh, your oh. perspective. Uh, it's always illuminating. I always enjoy our conversations. You always have such a great perspective. Um, I think there's a lot of lessons to, to learn here. And uh, I have not read your book, but I'm highly motivated to I just add it to the list. Uh, the other day. So once again, if you're having trouble sleeping at night, <laughs> I don't think that'll be the case. Yeah. I love the strategy component and I love hearing the war stories, uh, you know, the tales from the front of like what really happens. I, I love those types oh. of books. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. We have great stories. Can't wait to read it. All right. Well, Patrick and Shelly, I've got to run. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. We also wanted to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. 
And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32. 